Welcome to the podcast for Epworth United Methodist Church in Berkeley, California. I'm Kristen Stoneking, the senior pastor here. And I'm Brian Adkins, associate pastor. Our mission here is to live out God's love for all. We strengthen our faith as we worship, study, develop a creative, supportive community, and serve others. Our podcast blends a taste of the music that we experience here in worship on Sunday mornings, along with a scripture reading and a message. Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Luke, uh, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, and that can be found on page 71 of your pew Bibles. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in 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 the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your heart with all your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Holy wisdom, holy words, thanks be to God. Lord, keep so busy praising my Jesus. Keep so busy praising my Jesus. Keep so busy praising my Jesus. Ain't got time to die. Cause when I'm healing the sick, I'm praising my Jesus. When I'm healing the sick, I'm praising my Jesus. When I'm healing the sick, I'm praising my Jesus. Ain't got time. Cause it takes all of my time to praise my Jesus, all of my time to praise my Lord, if I don't praise him, the rocks are going to cry out, glory and honor, glory and honor, ain't got time to die. Good morning, fellow congregants. I am Michael Martin, a grateful and happy member of Epworth. Those of you who read the bulletin know my story. Isn't that a nice write-up Mary gave me? It made me sound kind of human and somewhat almost well-adjusted, you know? (laughs) It is wonderful to be here in the pulpit. I am flattered and honored to have been asked. The last time I spoke from here was a little more than three years ago. 
uh, when Martin Luther King's uh, birthday uh, fell on a Sunday. And uh, I, was, I was just six weeks out of the hospital. I had had several surgeries. And I had made the commitment before I knew it was going to be such a long stay. So when the time came, um, I was really wondering if I'd be able to make it through standing up here. But then, just like this morning, I said, how do you like that choir? And I looked over, and all of those smiling, loving faces were looking at me, and uh, I knew where I was and why I was here. So apparently I did okay. They asked me back. <laughs> Though it's, it's been three years. <laughs> well, today, today I want to talk about a dream. The dream of a truly equal America. I fear I have some bad news. And I hope I have some good news. So let's look at it together. Let me start with some quotations from the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. I love quoting Dr. King not just because of his elegant truth-telling, but because I can imitate him and pretend that I'm really preaching. What he said back in August of 1963, during the famous March on Washington that I fear is losing its historical significance, is this. I say to you today, my friends, though, even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by, by the color of their skin, but by the content of their char character. I have a dream today. And now this from Langston Hughes, the poet, author, columnist, who lived from 1902 to 1967 and is widely regarded as the poet laureate and one of the founding, founding fathers of the uh, Harlem Renaissance movement of the 1920s. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? Or fester like a sore? and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load or does it explode? I juxtapose this passage and this poem because together they impose an important question. Uh, what, in God's name, happened to Martin Luther King's dream? One of his four little children is a grandparent. The other's dead. Where have we, as a nation, come in the 57 years since? We had the disco era, the me decade, the crack cocaine crisis, which resulted in increases in jail sentences, the opioid crisis, which has resulted in decreases in jail sentences, Enron, redlining, the tech boom, the tech bust, we had Rodney King, who since taking his beating and uttering his famous can't we all just get along quote, has died. 
Eric Garner, 350 pound asthmatic, big fat Eric Garner, died in July of 2014. He died at the hands of a New York City police officer, Daniel Pentaglio, who used an illegal restraining technique. The chokehold was illegal because too often it could cause death. Officer Pantaleo used it on Eric Garner and according to the medical examiner, caused his death. He used the illegal hold and it caused the death. The grand jury was convened and declined to even indict him on any charges. Five years later, he was fired, prompting such protests from the police officers union that one would have thought he was a hero. Officer Pantaleo killed a black man with his bare hands in an attempt to run him in for selling illegal cigarettes. The police officers union said that firing him after five years sent a message that would inhibit officers from properly performing their duties. He killed a black man, he faced no criminal charges, he continued to draw a salary for five more years, and when he was fired, he and his buddies beefed. Congressman Peter King, for whom both men were constituents, stated that Garner's obesity and poor health were the true cause of his death. Certainly race couldn't have had anything to do with it. Uh, Mr. King said that if, if, if Mr. Garner had been a 350-pound white guy, he wouldn't have been treated just the same. Our president at the time, a black man named Obama, called Garner's death and its lack of legal consequences an American problem. And I bring this horrible thing up because it illustrates best, perhaps, the deep, deep institutionalization of America's racism. It also illustrates the, most, the single most insidious feature of the practice of this racism, the denial that it even occurred. This gaslighting has been the future of oppression of, of the African since the beginning of uh, European imperial colonization of the rest of the world. Either it's not even happening, or if it cannot be credibly denied, it wasn't a matter of race. Each of these conceptual vessels of racism are dependent on one another. With their assistance, the killing of an unarmed black man by a white police officer, the sort of killing that seems to become epidemic in recent years, could take place with impunity. In this case, the late Mr. Garner's congressman said it could have happened to a similarly situated white guy if he could have found a similarly situated white guy in front of the convenience store in the neighborhood where Mr. Garner was killed. Yeah. His president, a black man, said that it was a problem with his country the country of which he was president. Apparently no one was responsible for this clear case of racial injustice, except maybe the criminal justice system, an institution. Well, these institutions will carry us forever if we let them. Let's talk about the first institution, the institution of slavery which required the institutionalization, the institutionalization of racism to survive. Um, I mean, the care and strength 
with which the institution of slavery was built is incredible. We, we can't ignore the magnitude with which it has impacted our society. And it was supported by the crown before the revolution. And when the revolution espousing the very principles that were at the very opposite of such an institution came along, it managed to be supported by all three branches of this new government. And unfortunately, the principles on which it is based have had to be, be woven into and perpetuated and sold, sold to American society in order to justify the, even the existence of such a horrible thing. And with that, that's where, where the, the institutions carry this, um, this uh, insidious, insidious uh, uh, sin of racism it's so, so efficiently that the rest of us don't have to think about it. I've gone passionate and gone off script here. So I must be telling the truth. Where did I leave out? Otherwise, it would make no sense. We have the Declaration of Independence. The racism upon the, the, the institutions, particularly the institution of slavery, which at the time it was abolished, was the biggest business in the United States. It, uh, it took a war because really constitutionally, when, when the president ordered all of the slaves in the District of Columbia freed, it cost him a fortune because constitutionally he could not take the property of the citizens without proper reparations. So he had to essentially buy the property of the people of the District of Columbia in order to remain faithful to our Constitution. That's pretty strange. So black people have been, from the very start, denied the rights of citizenship, indeed of personhood in America. By necessity, black American has, has had to create a parallel society. I mean, the institutions were so strong that there's a vast network of historically black colleges and universities. There are black fraternities, black sororities, uh, there are black masons. Um, there were the Negro Leagues. There is the black press. Uh, my first job out of college was as a writer and editor for the California Voice, a black weekly here in Oakland. There are, of particular note to We United Methodists, the AME and CME churches. Many of our existing institutions reflect the sadness of our history. And America seems to fight so hard to maintain these barriers and to limit the opportunities it presents to white people. And when by such perseverance or the determination to live a full life, a black person has the good fortune, determination, or, or skill to breach one of these, these barriers, the society turns and 
perversely celebrates and makes a hero out of him. He becomes a, uh, the first one, a hero in his field, a pioneer for wanting to merely live a life. But the institutionalization is what allows us to continue living side by side with the sin that continues. It is the grease that oils the, the racist system. If I describe to a white friend or colleague my history of being pulled over and harassed by police officers in the myriad jurisdictions through which I've driven my car, we can both agree that it's wrong and that it's a sin. Certainly he as an individual white person can't be held responsible for such behavior or for a system that encourages or allows it or even encourages it. The individual denial of collective guilt is really the grease on which the societal machines are lubricated. Blatant, horrible instances of racism that took place in the past are excused in the observation that they were in keeping with, with whatever times they were in when they occurred. Blatant racism that takes place as recently as yesterday are excused as someone else's racism. We can all agree that the cops, the law firms, the president, you know, they're racist, but no one can explain why this racism persists. No one will take responsibility for it. And uh, we could be discouraged. I mean, the institutions into which our society's racism are baked are largely old and staid, like my alma mater, Yale. It's as, it, as such, it seems that their old racist ways must be fought against, of course, like the wider racism in our, in our country at large, often to no avail. But these things were baked in long ago, and it's a long uphill fight. But consider this. I just completed my second season of boycotting the NFL. Not that the league noticed. I mean, I was in my 30s before I even went to an NFL game, and I probably have only been to four or five of, of them, and, and uh, I didn't even buy the tickets for those. Those were given to me, so they don't really notice, but uh, I have, for my part, refused to watch any NFL football and, uh, and um, tried to avoid following it in the newspaper or any of the wider media, although you would be surprised at how difficult that is. The NFL is everywhere. But the reason I boycott is to protest its treatment of former 49ers quarterback Colin Ka Kaepernick. As many of you probably know, Mr. Kaepernick chose not to stand in response to the playing of the national anthem before football games. He was doing this, he said, to protest the persistent racial injustice in our society, particularly the policies of the police in their brutal treatment of black people. Now another player, he was merely sitting down, another player advised him that it would be more respectful to take a knee during the anthem. So that's where the whole take a knee thing started. And then it became a thing. It became a controversy uh, with sides to take. Um, the, uh, it was, his kneeling was perverted into his protest for something um, against something un-American was perverted into un-American activities. He was branded as unpatriotic and um, 
Some players joined him in the knee, but ultimately what I feared at the time came true. The knee became a thing that black athletes did that died out. And um, any player, you know, that knelt has been forgotten, and we don't really talk about taking the knee anymore. And for his part in all this, Mr. Kaepernick was drummed out of the league. And of course, it wasn't racist. It never is. The, uh, there was no collusion. The league found that out after it investigated himself. <laughs> and the NFL took away what would have been the best athletic years of this man's career for having the temerity to stage a racial protest on its turf. Pun intended. Just as boxing in the United States government took away the best years of Muhammad Ali's career some 50 years ago. And so I boycotted it. But think about this. What if it had been the Gronk? The Gronk, by the Gronk, I'm talking about Rob Gronkowski, a big, white, highly popular tight end for the New England Patriots. He's since retired and has become a commentator. But uh, what if the Gronk had refused to stand? Not saying that he grew up with black people, not saying that he had played side by side with black players in the NFL or before, um, just saying, based on what he was seeing every day, what we're all seeing every day, he was protesting the treatment of black people in America. What would have been the reaction? I think, uh, I think people would have thought he was up to something. I don't think anyone would have believed him. I don't think we're there in our thinking yet. Or how about this? Um, you're all uh, familiar with, perhaps not, Rachel Donazal, Dalazal. She's the white woman from Spokane who was president of their branch of the NAACP. And she's famous because she voluntarily chooses to identify as African-American. And it was a big dust-up a couple years ago. And the comedian, Dave Chappelle, has a bit that he does about her. And he says, it's OK, Rachel, we'll take you. But you can't be black and just keep being Rachel Dolezal. You got to get you a black name, a name like uh, a name like Draymond Green, a name that the Airbnb computers will kick out right away. <laughs> now, Mr. Chappelle's routine and the audience, black and white, who found it hilarious, say an interesting thing about this. First, we readily accepted the concept of black or white names. As a matter of fact, uh, Ms. Dolisell has since taken on the name Inkechi Amare Diallo. So I guess that's black enough for Dave Chappelle. I think Airbnb might kick that one out, too. But more compellingly disturbing is how we all, black and white, in order to get the joke, had to accept the premise. We all radically accepted, some of us cynically, some of us naively, that an institution, a brand new institution, something as new as Airbnb, had already incorporated racism into the very basis of its structure. Airbnb, a brand new institution, already had its own institutionalized racism.
The Apostle Luke comes in here. I love the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's been interpreted on many levels. Like maybe Jesus was a Samaritan and mankind was the injured man. Maybe this. What I find is in order, it's, it's, an, it's an insistent lesson that we must become one, truly one, in order to ever, ever reach our goal of racial justice. Becoming truly one with one's fellow black person almost surely requires dedication and sacrifice, emotionally, spiritually, financially. It's significant that Jesus is relating the parable to his fellow Jews. The Samaritans were, I understand, hated, despised. They weren't just outsiders, but they were considered a despised enemy. And here Jesus is telling a, a parable, a story where the Samaritan is the hero. But what I really like is the degree to which the Samaritan goes to help the injured man. He uses his own wine and, and, and oil to, to dress his wounds. He puts him on his own ass to transport him to an inn, pays for his lodging, and leaves him with an open tab. It's clear that loving one's neighbor involves considerable risk and cost. So it's been 57 years since Dr. King expressed his dream for his children. Since I started my first legal job back in 1983, I have given addresses on Dr. King's birthday or an observation of Black History Month probably 30 times. I was always the go-to guy in whatever federal agency I was working to speak on such subjects. Each ceremony seemed more and more nostalgic for the bygone days of the Civil Rights Movement. And looking at the timeline, it's clear to me that the society of which Dr. King dreamt will not exist in my lifetime. That's the bad news of which I spoke earlier. Progress has occurred, but black men are still being shot to death in the streets with impunity. Mike Bloomberg, not long ago, presided over a New York City where he supported, indeed ordered, stop and frisk. Uh, ordinances that were virtually martial law brought into the black community. Now he wants to be president. The current president did, well. <laughs> this mess won't be cleaned up by the time I die is my point. But I must remember that steady progress has always been made. Steady progress has always been made against a very formidable foe. I think of Frederick Douglass, who I understand the president has finally learned who he is. <laughs> Frederick Douglass, he was born a slave, he escaped to freedom, he spent his lifetime fighting racism's evils. When he died in the 1890s, slavery had been abolished, but America was still a racial mess. Continued slave-like conditions, sharecropping, disenfranchisement, public lynchings persisted. He had fought his entire life to correct the condition, and he died with it woefully uncorrected. He had made it his life's work, even if it was left undone in his time. And likewise, I have hope. I have hope. I have hope and long for another movement, a movement akin to the now revered 
increasingly ancient civil rights movement. The urgency of now is what that movement embodied. With white people participating as avidly as their black siblings, we, you and me, could be a part of such a movement. We, you and me, must be a part of such a movement. The quest for equality must be energized. Martin Luther King characterized this sort of urgency in a less popular message than his I Have a Dream speech, where he said, there will be neither rest nor tranquility in America until the Negro is granted his citizenship rights. The whirlwinds of revolt will continue to shake our nation until the bright days of justice emerge. No, no, we are not satisfied. And we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. So let us strive that ever we will let the cry of freedom, our watch cry. You know, it's been said a million times, but Emma Lazarus, the poet who wrote The, the New Colossus, the poem at the Statue of Liberty, said it best for me, until we are all free, none of us is free. Let us go forward with a prayer for a new movement, a movement wherein we, as true siblings, fight for equality and freedom. My brothers and sisters, let freedom ring. For when we allow freedom to ring, when we let it ring from every city and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of that old Negro spiritual. Free at last, free at last, great God Almighty, we are free at last. Amen. And I thank you. listening to the podcast for Epworth United Methodist Church in Berkeley, California. I'm Brian Adkins, associate pastor here. We'd love for you to take a next step in growing in faith in this community. If you are here in Berkeley, Epworth's worship is at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 1953 Hopkins Street at the corner of Napa and Hopkins. And I'm senior pastor Kristen Stoneking. If you connect to our podcast from further away, we would invite you to visit our website epworthberkeley.org. We'd invite you to keep seeking to grow in faith and to stop by the next time you're in Berkeley.